Well, good morning, church. You guys all right? Because I'm pretty excited to be here, I was going to say. Um, you know, uh, you, I'm sure you've heard of this thing called a vortex, right? Uh, a spinning body of water or air that uh, spins and spins and then begins to suck from around it things into it. And on occasion, you encounter a passage of Scripture that at first glance seems really short and small, and it says a few quick things, and you're like, oh, that's, that's neat. But the more you dig into it, the more you begin to uh, discover what it has to say, the more you watch it bring in and, and bring illumination to multiple other truths from all over Scripture. And before you know it, this little passage with this little verse becomes a massive, overwhelming reality of truth that you begin to go like, I don't have enough space to hold all that I'm discovering. It's kind of how I feel about the passage today. So I feel a bit overwhelmed. Honestly, I'm like, I've got 35-ish minutes to do this, and we've got about seven and a half hours of stuff to try to get through, uh, because the more uh, we embed ourselves, the more I was able to embed myself into this short, full verses that we're about to cover, the more it sucked in truths from all over Scripture, and it becomes a little summary of a massive reality. And so I'm very excited to be here. Uh, I, I'm very excited to dive into this because there's a lot to discover. And when we are entering into Scripture and we want to discover the full depth of what we are entering into, and we want to make sure that what we're discovering is in fact accurate and right, that we are not extracting truths from something by our own sensibilities, by our own conclusions, but that we are staying true to the intent and reality and truth of the word, there are some important things we have to keep in mind. And this passage we're about to dive into is a great example of how we engage in Scripture in a way to bring fullness that allows us to see the full picture and have it be accurate. And to do that, we always have to engage in context. Uh, in Bible college, I had a professor that taught a number of classes that I took, and he started every class the same way that I ever took from him. He would say, ladies and gentlemen, what are the three rules for accurate biblical interpretation? And then we would all repeat. He would say, rule number one, context. Rule number two, context. And rule number three, context. Because when something is outside of its context, you can make it mean whatever you desire it to mean. But when it stays in its context, you don't get to do that. The context does that for you. And God has placed his word always within a context. So when we are studying a passage to experience its full depth, we need to look at the historical context we look, need to look at the biblical context of this passage or book in the whole of Scripture. We need to look at the book or letter in which the verses reside and the context in which they sit and the context of the paragraph in which the single verse sits. And when you do that adequately, you hardly are able to misinterpret a verse. And so today, we're going to spend a little bit of time in context, not as much for accuracy because this verse is fairly self-explanatory, but for fullness, because you discover so much more of this seemingly simple set of verses when you understand what's going on around them. 
So first and foremost, before we jump into this little part of Philippians, remember, it is a letter. And so it is written to a particular group of people in a particular context with particular situations in a particularly large cultural context in which they reside. And this passage we're about to read is in the context of the letter. So when we are studying like we are here, where each week we break down just a few verses, if we're not careful, we can forget that these verses follow some verses and they precede some verses that are part of a letter. And so Paul is never speaking just about this little piece. He's moving thought from one thought to another and they are all interrelated. So what is the historical context so that we can understand the beauty and depth of what Paul's about to say, inspired by the Holy Spirit? He is writing to the city of Philippi. As you guys may remember, the people of Philippi were initially populating that area because the uh, nation of Rome, the empire of Rome, rewarded their most loyal citizens with free land and free taxes in the city of Philippi on the Aegean Sea in Macedonia as a retirement community for the best of the best, the loyalist of the loyalist of Rome. And so when they went there, already you know you're in a context where the people that live in this particular city, where this particular church resides, are people that hold great value and loyalty in the passport that is their Roman citizenship. And the better Rome does the happier they are. Why? Because they are watching the news. They are watching the social media streams. They are wanting to hear about what's going on in Rome because when Rome does well, they do well. And when Rome does badly, they do badly. And so their hope and their future and their security is deeply embedded in the well-being of the nation to who they belong by the passport that they hold, the citizenship that is theirs. When Paul came to this city in the first place, we saw this unfold. In the book of Acts in chapter 16, we hear the story of Paul's first encounter and the encounter of the gospel first in Philippi. Uh, Paul arrives in Philippi having gone on his second missionary or church planting journey. He goes from Antioch, crosses south of Bithynia, north of Asia Minor, crosses the Aegean Sea, ends up in Macedonia, and he's working his way down Macedonia to plant churches and preach the gospel. So you've got cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, all of them running down the coastline of the Aegean Sea and uh, the area of Macedonia. When he gets into Macedonia, the first city he gets to is the city of? It's not a trick question. (laughs) Philippi! We're doing the letter of Philippians. Okay, so he gets to the city of Philippi and the story unfolds in scripture so we don't even have to count on historical documentation. It is right in Acts chapter 16. Paul gets there uh, and him and his partner, they say, okay, let's in the morning go to where uh, it seems people come to pray. It literally says that they guessed uh, people probably come to pray here in the city and they go there and they hang out there and they meet a woman named Lydia and they preach the gospel to Lydia because she has come to this area to pray because it says she is a woman that that has God in her mind. She, she, she knows God and whatever that generally means, right? So she comes to pray. They preach the gospel to her and she comes to know Jesus. And they go to her household and preach the gospel to her household and they all come to know Jesus. And she is said to be an incredibly successful businesswoman selling clothing of purple, which is a way of saying 
she is very successful, right? And so that's where they start. On their way, uh, after being with Lydia and her family, uh, going through the streets of Philippi, they encounter a woman who is possessed by demons, and because of her possession, she can tell the future. And there's someone that uses the skill set the demons give her to extract money from others by them telling their fortune or their future. So they see this woman, and they cast the demons out of her and set her free. But unfortunately, in her freedom, her ability to tell the future by the power of these demons is also gone. And the person who makes money on this gets super mad and goes, you can't do this, and goes to the magistrate. This is all in Acts chapter 16. And here's where it gets important. Pay attention now, because this is all part of the context that helps us understand what Paul is about to do in these verses that we're going to encounter. The magistrate, they go to the magistrate and they say, this person, Paul and his partner, are disrupting the city by bringing into the city values and realities that oppose Rome. Did you hear that? That's what the, they don't know and say, they cast out the demons from my person and now she can't tell the future and I'm going to be broke. No, 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 none of that comes to the table. These people hold philosophies that oppose Roman ideology and that is dangerous to Rome. And so what do they do? They go find these two, the magistrate comes with the police, find these two. They strip them of their clothes, beat them and throw them in jail. How seriously does Philippi take Roman citizenship and Roman way? Very seriously. Seriously enough that if you oppose it, we don't just cancel you, we beat you. It's a little, little heightened, isn't it? So they go into jail that night Uh, the jail gets supernaturally opened and the guard for the jail wakes up to find them, uh, the the cell empty. And he's about to kill himself because he's going to die anyway for letting them escape. And Paul's right there and he's like, don't kill yourself, we're right here, we're not going anywhere. And he's so taken back that he comes to know Jesus, the guard. And then they go to the guard's family and the entire guard's family comes to know Jesus. Then the police come no kidding, go read it. I'm not making this up. The police come and they say, we talk, the magistrate sent us to tell you you can set Paul and, the, and his partner free because they found out that maybe their initial uh, arresting and beating wasn't necessarily a great idea because they didn't really have any basis of evidence. They just jumped on it, right? So here's what Paul does, no kidding. So Paul gets this word, you, you can go free. And Paul goes, uh-uh-uh-uh, no, 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 no. They arrested us publicly, beat us publicly. They're going to apologize publicly. I'm not even kidding. Go read it. I love Paul. He's like, "Uh uh-uh. You know, just it literally says in the passage, you're not going to get to secretly set us free. And then he says this, because we are Roman citizens. (laughs) Why does that matter? They take Roman citizenship so seriously that if you bring philosophies that oppose it, they beat you and jail you. But when they find out you are a citizen, then what do they do? It says that the magistrate came with their whole entourage quickly to Paul and begged their forgiveness. Please forgive us. We didn't know you were a Roman citizen. We would have never touched you if, you were, if we knew you were a Roman citizen. Please leave the city and go in peace. We're so sorry. And I love just as a little side note that Paul goes to Lydia's house first and hangs out for a while. And I do wonder if that wasn't Paul's way of saying, we'll leave the city when we're good and ready. Roman citizenship, so you cannot tell us what to do. Uh, maybe Paul was just going to Lydia's, but if it were me, I was doing it as a bit of a jab back at the magistrate. I will leave the city when I'm good and ready. 
So I'll talk to Paul later about that, whether that was in his heart, but certainly it feels like it would have been in mine. So Paul hangs out for a bit and then he rolls on out of Philippi. Paul is writing a letter into a context where the people take their citizenship to Rome so seriously that if you oppose it, they cancel you, beat you, and jail you. And if you belong to it, they protect you, guard you, and apologize to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're part of the system, you are safe and protected and supplied for and provided for by the system. And if you oppose the system, you are killed. That's a big deal. That's a strong citizenship. Paul is also writing this around AD 62. And the reason that's important is because in AD 64, just two years or so after the writing of some of these letters, Nero, who is in power now, will go through that crazy event where he sets the city of Rome on fire, blames the Christians, and starts one of the greatest persecutions against Christendom in all of history. The horrors and atrocities that would take place under Nero were so unthinkable, we cannot speak of them in a place like this because it would offend those under the age of 100. And so the point is that at the end of the day, you are going to see an incredible opposition rise called Rome against the gospel of Jesus Christ, against the church, against the kingdom of God, that God, not Paul, because Paul didn't even know that was happening, are preparing the people for. There is a great persecution coming, and we will have to stand in the midst of that persecution. So this letter is entering into a space where God is preparing the people to solidify their hope in God's kingdom. And Paul is helping the people to solidify their hope in their citizenship in heaven in a time where the culture in which they are in as a church is beginning to oppose the value system that they held, or rather, put a better way, their value system as it is becoming more apparent because they're studying the word of God is beginning to show itself as opposition to that which is Rome. And this complicates things. So, Paul is now writing. Now, before we actually go to the actual passage, remember I told you there's a historical context. Welcome. We're all there now. But there's also a context within the letter, right? So remember what Paul's done so far so that we know what he's about to do. He started with the greeting very quickly, uh, equalizing himself with the Philippians. We are servants of the king together. We are in partnership together in the gospel. And then he entered into a description of his life in prison. And he said to them, it may seem from a human perspective that me being stuck in prison is thwarting the expansion of the kingdom of God, right? Because I could be in Spain preaching the gospel. But in fact, in God's economy, in God's value system, in God's kingdom, he expands his kingdom when he is expanding it through incredible, amazing accomplishments like preaching to all of Spain. And he expands his kingdom when you are suffering and stuck in prison because his kingdom expands equally through that which we do from a human perspective that seems like it's expanding as well as expanding through the suffering we endure on this planet on behalf of Jesus that too actually becomes a profound and wonderful way in which the kingdom of God is made known, is encountered, and transforms the lives of people that observe you and I suffering for Jesus. And so Paul says, I'm suffering for Christ, but don't worry. That is not thwarting the kingdom. It is expanding the kingdom. And your suffering, Philippians 
is also going to expand the kingdom as we partner together in this journey forward. And then last week, if you remember, Paul then says, the reason we can live in this suffering and be able to endure it when it is our particular season in life, because it's not all suffering all the time. The kingdom expands through suffering. The kingdom also expands through when things are going incredibly well. But when it is through suffering, the reason we don't have to become discouraged or become uh, uh, sad or broken by the idea that we're stuck, uh, certainly suffering produces grief, but we're not stuck, is because of this. That to live is Christ now. When we live, we live in Christ, for Christ, by Christ. So whatever our provision was on this planet, whatever it gave to us, whatever we had, wherever our security lay, we no longer need to count on that. That is nice to have. It's practical. But at the end of the day, he is enough here and now. And if our provision is so robbed of us that our very lives are in danger and we lose our life because we don't have what we need or because we are persecuted to the point of death, then death is what? Gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. So what do you have to lose? To live, you have nothing to lose. To die, you have nothing to lose. Because you belong now to a kingdom that is eternal, not temporal. And to a king who is eternal, not temporal. And one who is powerful and good enough to take care of you. And so he said that. And now he writes what we're about to encounter. There it is. I told you this is going to be a four and a half hour deal. I'm just kidding. We're going to rock and roll. I did it in the first. I'm going to do it in the second. Turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Paul just came out of uh, that beautiful unpacking of Christ being enough to live as Christ, to die as gain. And then he says this in verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to see you again. So what Paul is saying is, I know, though I would prefer to be with Jesus, that my ongoing suffering is going to stir you up and spur you on toward your own journey to make the gospel known. You will experience and see the glory of Christ through me, so I know I'm going to be here a little bit longer in this suffering. And now he says, watch what Paul does. He's going to move from the spotlight being on him. I'm suffering for Christ, for his glory. People who don't know Jesus are experiencing the gospel. You are being stirred up and spurred on by my suffering. Suffering is in fact a means of expanding the kingdom of God. But now I'm going to turn the light back on you, church of Philippi. And I'm going to call you to something in light of where I sit as Paul. Look, look what he says. Verse 27, now we're in the passage for today. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he begins this, I'm suffering on behalf of Christ. I'm watching you. Now I'm going to ask you, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what's fascinating about this sentence and the Greek words used in this sentence. So Paul is about to present two word pictures that are going to help the people of Philippi understand what he's calling them into. And the first word picture happens in this sentence. The word that is translated in our Bibles as uh, let your, only let your manner of life, that sentence, your manner of life be worthy, can also be translated, ready, 
let your citizenship be worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. The word used, translated there, is the same word from the root word of citizenship. In uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul will actually say it directly. He will say, our citizenship is not in Rome. It is in heaven with Jesus. That word he uses in 3.20 is the same root word that he uses here. And so he's saying this. This is what he's saying. Only let your citizenship your belonging to the kingdom of God now, be worthy, live a life under that citizenship that is worthy of Christ Jesus. What, What is he saying here? He's saying, listen, when you hold citizenship to a particular group, body, nation, and you encounter others who encounter the fact that you hold that citizenship, they are making judgments about your nation, your people group, and your leader based on your behavior. So Americans, we know this, right? When you travel on an American passport, and you have an American accent, and you wear American clothing, and you travel to other parts of the world, right? What is the hope of the rest of us that live here in America about your behavior? We're kind of hopeful that you won't be rude and a jerk and arrogant, and walk around like you're the king or queen of the world, and treat people badly. Why? Because when those people, whoever they may be, encounter someone, and you have an American accent, and you hold an American passport, and you're a jerk, and you're the one they encounter, what do they think about us? They think we're jerks. You've never encountered this around the world, have you? I mean, how much they say about Americans, but we do the same thing. Uh, Brazilians this, Africans that, Indonesians this, Asians that. I mean, we are a human race that just loves to kind of go, I met one one time, and therefore all are that way. <laughs> but it is incredible, isn't it, that in our human experience, when we encounter someone that belongs to a nation or a group, we determine what that group, nation, or leader is like based on our experience with them. And this is what Paul is saying. You are in a city now that has heard and seen that you belong to a new empire with a new king that is bringing a new value system. And when you live your life holding that passport, they are going to determine this king's value system and this king's heart and this world's reality based on what they see you do and the way they see you live. And so you don't get to belong to this kingdom and think it doesn't matter how you live, behave, and think. So you got to do that. Now look what he says. Only let your manner or your citizenship of the kingdom of God, your life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So now he's doing two things simultaneously. He's elevating the idea that our citizenship to the kingdom of God is what we now represent. That is where we belong. We do not share that citizenship. It is who we are now. And we need to live representing that kingdom while we are in this place that is not our home. And when we do it, we ought to be doing it with what? One spirit. It's right there. Are you guys following along? I feel like I said like one and I pause and you guys are like, like, we just read it. One spirit. 
Now, if we're going to have one spirit, if we're going to be united in, in one mind, which is in a sane second, then what that means, walk with me now, in order to have one spirit, one mind, we're going to all have to be very familiar with the value system and the realities of this kingdom, aren't we? If you know nothing of the kingdom you belong to, you know nothing of its constitution, you know nothing of its foundation, you know nothing of its history, and you know nothing of its future, and you know nothing of its value system, and you know nothing of its king, and you're supposed to represent, and we're all people that know nothing of this kingdom. How one-minded are we going to be? So in order to have one spirit representing our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, we all have to be very familiar with the constitution of this kingdom, which is the word of God by the power of the spirit of God. So if we do not know this, we will not be of one mind or one spirit. So does truth matter? It does matter. It does matter. So as we progress, we're going to see God do something amazing, but I do want you to know that truth does matter because what truth does for us is it brings about our one spirit, our like-mindedness, because we all hold to the same constitution of the same kingdom with the same king that we are supposed to be representing. Now he says this, with one mind, oh, there it is, I didn't even make it up. How cool is that? Are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving. Now look where he goes next. He moves next to now an action. It's not just what you know. It's not just the truth you hold, but it is now what you do with this truth. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what are we striving for? For the faith of the gospel. What is the faith of the gospel? That people would know and experience the gospel of Jesus Christ, thereby coming to know him, thereby becoming part of his kingdom, which is light, life, and freedom, thereby experiencing life, light, and freedom, thereby having eternal life, and thereby experiencing the faith of the gospel. So what is it that we live for now? It is to be humans that in each of our contexts, each of our relational dynamics, each of our uh, uh, circumstantial realities, we are actually striving to represent the kingdom of God by in like-mindedness making known the gospel that people can both hear it and experience it through us individually and through us collectively. That's what he's saying. Listen, while I'm in prison, please do that. Please do that and do it side by side. So he first gives us this picture. We're all citizens of a new kingdom with a king who has a constitution. And we need to know the constitution and know the king so that we are like-minded of one spirit as we represent this kingdom. And we need to do it side by side. So your first experience might be that you've locked arms and you're skipping along, representing the kingdom of God. La, 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 side by side. We may be singing like a nice worship song while we're doing it. Nothing wrong with that. Except that Paul, in the next sentence, moves the word picture from a skipping along in a park to a war zone. Slightly different. So look what he does. 
because it elevates the urgency of what it means to be side by side. Watch, look what he says. Uh, Where are we? Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents and not frightened by anything in your opponents. Do you see what he just did? Does that sound like a skipping in a park? As you skip along the park and you encounter opponents, don't be afraid. No, that sounds like a war. And so what he's saying is, listen, we now come with a kingdom in us and a kingdom through us by the power of the Spirit that opposes this kingdom. So therefore, this kingdom will oppose us. Any culture, any empire, any nation that you encounter when you bring the word of God, it will, on some level, significantly oppose that culture. There is no culture on this planet that you'll be like, ah, and it's going to be line. It's going to be beautiful. Maybe in brevity. But I think we have this idea, even in our nation, like, oh my gosh, our nation was always like deeply aligned to the word of God, and now it's not. I'm like, it was fairly aligned, kind of, sort of, in some ways. And now it's less aligned, kind of, sort of, in some ways. But this ain't the kingdom of God. And this is the constitution that belongs. And what he's saying is, man, listen, embed yourselves in this so that when you face opposition and you stand together, side by side, with a truth you hold as one mind, two things happen. You are unified and you are together in your unity. And listen, you are willing to stand and pay the price. Now, here's what gets interesting. What Paul's about to do is he's going to say, when we stand together in unity with the constitution of the kingdom of God and we stand without fear and we are like-minded, it is in that encounter that the world will understand their position versus our position as far as it relates to eternal life. Now, let me explain what I just said because it's very important. We are sometimes under the impression that the way the truth matters the most is that we know the truth so that we can take the truth and we can throw the truth at others so that they will come to believe. You with me so far? Truth's power is the spear I hold that is truth, right? And there you are, you don't believe the truth. (laughs) And now you are, I don't know, dead or alive. I'm not sure, but either way, you encountered truth, right? But what he's showing us here, watch this now, is that where truth matters the most is for those of us that know Jesus that we would know it and believe it so that we are like-minded, so that we stand firm, so that in our unity we stand against the opposition of the world, so that people see God's value system in us, and when they see us united, trusting God's value system, even at great cost, they will know that we belong to a different kingdom, and they will be intrigued. It is not us throwing truth their way, that is the primary means that they might encounter redemption. It is them seeing truth lived out in us. Now, does that mean we shouldn't share the truth with them? So just don't get, I'm going to get tweets and stuff. He said truth doesn't matter. I said truth matters like 400 times in this sermon already, okay? (laughs) So you don't get to do that. But what we often do is think that truth is the means to salvation. And it is insofar as that when we believe it and live it, People experience it through us, and then when we share it, it has authenticity. Let me explain. Have you guys ever heard of a place called Sparta? Look at all the yeses. Anybody not heard of Sparta? 
like one hand. I, I, don't, I don't think I have, maybe. So if you haven't heard of Sparta, good news, you're about to, okay? Sparta is, is, a, is a little village, a little town, a, a little area, if you will, in Greece in 480 BC. You can't visit Sparta today because it doesn't exist. And Sparta didn't live for very long because Persia uh, conquered Greece and wiped it all out anyway. But there were a couple of guys in Sparta, to be specific, 300 of them. And they are these 300 warriors. And one of them was the king. And the Persians sent word to the king of Sparta saying, listen, here's the deal. Uh, We like you. You seem strong. If you bow to the king of Persia, who is God, then I will elevate you to be an awesome city. And then you will be more wealthy than ever. And the king of Sparta said, huh, odd, that sounds more like slavery than freedom. So let me see, you come here, you take over, and then you make me what you want me to be. Uh, No, I don't think so. I think we'll just fight you. But you don't fight Persia because Persia is a force that was massive. So 300 soldiers from Sparta went, and there was a great battle that took place in 480 BC, and it has become famous for how long now? Thousands and thousands of years. You know, why it's, you know why it's famous? Every time you read a documentary on it or you watch a movie about it, you know what's inspiring about the Sparta story and the 300 men? There were only 300 of them against the entire Persian army. And by the way, they lost the battle. And by the way, they all died. Except for one, I think, who told the story. That's at least what the movie says. I don't know if that's true. But here's the deal. They all gave up their lives, but they held Persia back longer than anyone imagined they could. And they sent a message to the rest of the world that said Persia's not as strong as you think they are. And what made them extraordinary and what to this day causes us to be inspired by them is two things. The way they held Persia back is that they were absolutely unified. When you watch the documentaries or you watch the stories about them, the legend, these 300 men were warriors that every one of them were willing to die for the freedom of Sparta. And they were willing to stand by each other. And they had a unified offense and a unified defense. And because they did, they held them back. And when we look at that group of soldiers, we're like, you guys were one instead of 300. And you gave your lives for this. So what does that mean you felt about Sparta? A lot. And what does it mean you felt about your king? A lot. And what causes humans to go, wow, Sparta must have been something. And the king of Sparta must have been something. It's because 300 men gave themselves without thought to protect it, and they gave themselves as a single unit unified. And because they were unified, they were almost impenetrable. What Paul is saying is this. When you and I, as followers of Jesus, take our citizenship in heaven seriously, live by that citizenship, know its constitution, are one-minded and one-spirited, and we live by that value system, and we stand together in culture, not allowing culture or citizenship here to affect how we feel about things, then when the world looks in, this is what they see. Read with me. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. It's not him saying that's their judgment. It's him saying they will know where they stand versus where you stand as it relates to eternity And they will come to know Jesus as an opportunity because they see their destruction and your salvation. And then he says this. Look at this. For it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. I'll stop there for a second. Was it granted to us that we should believe in him? Okay, that's what I thought would happen. Has it happened in the nine as well? Okay, so this is FYI. The answer is yes. Okay, here we go. Because let me just, before you answer again, let me just ask you this, okay? Do you belong to an eternal kingdom? Yes. yes. Do you have salvation? Yes. Was that given to you by the life, death, and resurrection of your king? Yes. At great suffering? Yes. And does that mean you belong now to him forever? Yes. And you are part of an eternal family that will never, ever fade and go away? Yes. That you have life, light, and freedom instead of death and destruction and damnation? Yes. yes. So, was it granted us to believe? Yes, it was a gift, was it not? We have received a great gift and it was granted to us that we should, should believe so that we can belong, so that we can hold the passport of heaven. But look what he does next. He goes, not only was it granted to you that you would be a citizen of God's kingdom, but also granted to you to suffer for his sake, engaging in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What Paul is telling us is that when we hold our heavenly citizenship high and we live by that, not buying into whatever our worldly citizenship is, and we do it at whatever suffering price comes at holding to God's value system versus whatever value system we choose to hold based on our realities, then the world will know that Jesus is indeed an extraordinary king and his kingdom an extraordinary kingdom. But if we continue to entwine our citizenships, the heavenly one and the earthly one, as though they both matter sort of equally, then people will get super confused about what really matters. And they might, like us, embed themselves in the nation they're part of instead of the kingdom of God that is eternal. This nation came and this nation will go. In case you just got a shocking revelation and you're like, no, it won't. It will last forever. You should read the Bible. <laughs> this nation has come and this nation will go. As did Rome and Persia and Greece and every other nation before this one and every other nation after. And if we embed ourselves in the nation we temporarily belong to instead of in the kingdom of God, we're going to get ourselves super confused and we are going to be anything but unified, anything but of one mind and anything but of one spirit. And you know why? We actually live in this reality. So buckle up. It's about to get real, okay? I mean, gently, don't get me wrong, but real nonetheless. Here we go. <laughs> Do you know what makes our citizenship so complicated? It's the same as Philippi's. It's what made theirs so complicated. We actually have a passport that's quite fun to have, isn't it? I mean, America is a great nation. And even me saying that, you're like, I don't know anymore. I used to think that, but okay, what are, yeah, we all have, yeah. But in general, America provided quite a bit for us, right? I mean, you, you are free here generally, and you have a decent job generally most of the time, and, uh, and, and you have an education you can get, and it's good. Have you lived other places in the world? If you wonder whether this place doesn't provide a great deal for you, I recommend you go live somewhere else for a while. And then you'll come back and be like, oh. So because that passport holds power, we are a nation with a powerful presence in the world that provides for us. We have an economy that's generally strong, though it goes up and down, all that stuff. Our hope can quickly be found in the well-being of this nation. 
right? Because if this nation does well, then we do well. Now, do we want the nation to do well? Just in case you're like, no, I don't think so. I'm like, no, we, we do. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind well-being, right? I'd like a good economy. I like to wake up in the morning and not wonder if I'm going to eat for the next 12 days, right? It's nice. So should we be glad when the nation does well? Yes. Should we try to have the nation do well? Yes. But the second we begin to live as though this nation's well-being is our hope, we are in deep trouble. And I'll tell you why. Because all of us have a different opinion on what it means that this nation is doing well. So we all want the same thing. A nation doing well. Trouble is, we all have very different ideas of how to get there and what that means. So some of us like, as soon as it's this, then it'll be a great nation. No, as soon as it's this, then it'll be a great nation. You know why we fight so much about these stupid things? Because we believe secretly deep down that if this nation falls apart in whatever version our head says is fall apart, then we will fall apart. So as soon as this nation is great, then we'll be great. Folks, if you happen to find yourself at some point in your lifetime in a nation that has a dictator that hates the church and chases us down, puts us in prison and kills us, your job description doesn't change one bit. You wake up in the morning the same way you do now and your job description is what Paul just laid out. May your citizenship in heaven cause you to live a life worthy of your citizenship by living a life that makes the gospel known to those around you. People have done it in every context you can imagine. People in China and Japan and Indonesia and Africa and South America, all over the world have done it in seasons where they were under great persecution and seasons when they were under great freedom. And we will do it when we are in seasons of great prosperity and seasons of great persecution. We are so concerned with how well things are going on this planet that we fight so much over what it means to keep them well that we forget that we do not belong to this planet anymore. God's kingdom does not share citizenship. If you hold a passport to heaven, you are not an American Christian, nor are you an Indonesian Christian or an African Christian or a South American Christian. You are a Christian, meaning a follower of Jesus, a child belonging to God and a person who belongs to heaven. And your citizenship here is just the context in which you are called to make the gospel known by living a life worthy of your citizenship in heaven. So we need to be a people that fix our minds on the constitution of God's kingdom set our hearts on the things above, and then live in this context the best way we can, unified, trying to make this world as much like the kingdom of God as we can, recognizing that until Jesus returns, it will continue to be quite broken. So if you hope that as soon as our justice system does right things, then it'll all be fine. Bad news. You're gonna hope for the rest of your life until you die. And if you hope just as long as our economy stays true, will be good news. Your hope is as fickle as the economy. And if you hope that the right political system, the right, the right foundation, the right, I don't know what, gets in play, you are in for a rude awakening. But if your hope is in the eternal beauty of the kingdom we now belong to, and you use those values to bring grace and love and joy and truth to this world by behaving together in love, then 
we bring into this passage all the beauty that has been the truth of God all along. They will know you are my disciples by your love for each other and your love for the world. By loving people with the truth of Jesus, meaning living it out and sharing it with them. So may we become a people that move our mentality, not from being disloyal to the context in which we live or hating the passport we hold. You don't have to do that. You can like it. It's okay. You can be quite thrilled about it. But the second that thing holds any hope for you, you have entangled two citizenships and you and I are in danger because we only belong to one. And it is only that one that we represent and only that one that we should live for. That is the gospel. That is Philippians. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible love for us. God, these are complicated things for the people of Philippi and complicated things for us because as they lived in a context where the nation they belonged to was powerful, prosperous, protective, helpful, hopeful, and something that they could set their future in. So too is ours. And just like us, they also lived in a context where there was much disagreement about what would keep it great. But like every empire and every nation but for yours, Rome faded and is no more. Help us here to remember that though we are called by you as your people to seek the well-being of the place in which we live, we are called to do that not for our well-being, but for the well-being of the place in which we live. Because our well-being is established in an eternal kingdom that is our soon-to-be home. Remind us that we are sojourners, travelers, on a planet that is not our home, to represent a kingdom that does not live on this planet. And so help us to be kingdom-minded people of one spirit and one mind as we move forward into the story that you have for us, whatever our future might be circumstantially, whatever our nation might become, help us to be more concerned about your kingdom than this one and help us to live in unity under your banner rather than under this one. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.